Let's take our Bibles out and let's worship the Lord by heeding his word. Being Pentecost Sunday, I did want to bring our attention back to the events of the beginning of the church uh, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, yet our study today will not be from Acts chapter 2. In previous years, I have gone through, I've gone through Acts 2 at length, not to say I won't go through there again, but I wanted to break away from Acts chapter 2 and go to other passages that refer to the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is why we find ourselves in John's Gospel. And we'll be studying together John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. I am banking on the fact that you know a good deal about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We are simply going to be covering John 16, 5, 6, and 7, which is quite a small portion of Scripture, and I found as I studied it that indeed there's much to learn about the Lord, but there's indeed much we can learn about the disciples and therefore by our, about ourselves. Uh, so it is my hope that as we go into this passage of God's Word, uh, we'll really benefit from it. I, I give this a statement at the beginning to say we're not going to have a full statement on Pentecost and all that it means, but we are going to hopefully be able to uh, appreciate it uh, and how the disciples would have approached it and uh, how they faced it. So that's, that's my desire, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's consider believing God's plan because that's what the disciples had to do. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into the study of your word, we pray that it would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that to the degree that we would know your word, our faith would grow. We realize that we, our faith cannot grow if we don't know something, if we don't learn something. Faith can't grow without the knowledge of God. And Father, we pray that today we would learn more about you. Yes, we'll learn more about ourselves, but especially we'll more, learn more about you. We do pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I had, in my opinion, a good gym teacher. He was not only one who kept us moving, he was also a teacher who taught us about different sports. Now, I was athletic. I played several sports, and I was a fan of other sports, but this gym teacher was quite thorough. He taught us golf. He taught us badminton. He taught us tennis, along with the, all the other ones, but he taught us all of these other sports. I still remember when he taught us how tennis is scored, because I always wondered about how tennis is scored. I remember watching some of the tennis matches on television and hearing the announcer say something like, Love 15. And I wondered, what is that about? And then as you trace how the, the scores go, why is it that when a person scores one point, he gets 15? And then why is it that the points go 15, 30, 40? Why don't they go 15, 30, 45? Instead, they go 15, 30, 40. Why the difference there? 
Why can't they just count up by 15s? And then you get into the whole idea of deuce or advantage to one of the players, and it gets really confusing. Well, sometimes the ways of God are confusing. And I want to bring that to your attention by mentioning a passage that we all know very well. It's in the number of the Gospels, but I'll read for you uh, the passage from Matthew 16, 25. The Bible says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, doesn't that sound backwards? It's as if a step forward is a step backward, a step backward is a step forward. And what we find in this passage, the idea that one who saves his life loses it, one who loses his life finds it, the whole idea we have there is a struggle between perception and reality. A perception of lost, a perception of loss, a reality of gain. We find that these things don't match. And that battle is one that we face each day. And it's a battle that the disciples faced the night before Jesus died. We're looking in our Bibles at John chapter 16. In this chapter and previous chapters, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what is coming. In some, Jesus is on his way out and the Spirit of God is on his way in. The earthly ministry of Jesus is ending and the indwelling ministry of the Spirit is about to break forth. Now, I'm guessing as I gave that quick synopsis of what was about to take place, that is material that you've heard before. You've been taught that. You understand who Jesus is. You understand why he came. You understand why he left. You understand where he is now. You understand that he is coming again. You understand that the Holy Spirit of God empowered people in the Old Testament, yet in the New Testament he comes in a new and unique way to indwell people. You know that because you have a systematic understanding of God's plan of redemption. It's not new material, but perhaps for some people that is new. Perhaps you're like the disciples and you don't have a nice, neat, systematic understanding. You see, the disciples are not living on the other side of the events. They're living in the midst of the events. They're not able to look back at what happened. They're living through what happened. And I bring all that up to say we have to work hard if we're going to put ourselves into the experience of the disciples in John 16. But I think if we work hard enough and consider the disciples and their situation, God is going to help us to understand the difficult matters of perception and reality and how they face those difficult matters and how we might face those difficult matters. So we're going to begin chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, where we learn first that we so easily fall apart at seeming setbacks. We so easily fall apart at seeming setbacks. The disciples were full of sorrow because of their impending loss of the Lord. Look at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The, the disciples have been listening to Jesus, 
and all they can hear is Jesus is leaving. And they interpreted that as loss. They had a woe is me mentality. Their foremost thought was, how is this going to impact me? They couldn't imagine any benefit that might come from Jesus leaving. Furthermore, in verses 1, 2, and 3, Jesus says, explains that things are going to become more difficult because of opposition. Look in the midst of verse 2. Jesus says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You see, there will be a day that is coming when a character like Saul would practice his religion by killing Christians. Acts chapter 9. So the news of the persecution that was coming and Jesus was going, it brought sorrow to the disciples. My question is, was their sorrow acceptable? Verse 6 says, sorrow has filled your hearts. Is that okay? No. For several reasons. First, let me give you a theological reason. I want you to think about the mission of the eternal Son of God. What was his mission? It was the mission of the Son of God to take on human flesh, to be born of a woman, to die on the cursed tree. Now, does that seem good and proper for the glorious Son of God? Or is that a little bit below his pay grade? To take on flesh, to be born of a woman, to die on the cursed tree. I bring up that point to magnify the Son's submission to the Father's will in the face of humiliation. Because that's what he, he experienced. And if He would do that much, how could the disciples bemoan the onslaught of oppression or the absence of Christ? If He experienced all that, and willingly so, why weren't the disciples as willing? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, Christ's submission to the Father's will needs to check us when we have sorry responses to things that seem to us to be setbacks. They need to check our sorrow. One of the reasons that the disciples shouldn't have been full of sorrow was because of Christ's example, His submission to the Father to whatever degree, even to the greatest degree, even unto death. Another reason that we know the disciples' sorrow wasn't right because of Jesus' statement in verse 5. Look at your Bibles again. John chapter 16, verse 5, notice the end. Jesus says to them, None of you asks me, where are you going? Where are you going? What is Jesus trying to get at by saying those words? What we need to realize is that questions show interests, and that reality is painfully true in relationships, especially budding relationships. You see, a boy likes a girl, he asks for time with the girl, and then he spends his time with the girl telling him about himself, telling her about himself in order to impress her so that she'll come to like him. But you realize that doesn't work. Because relationships are about other people. Good relationships or good conversations don't take place when someone just boasts about themselves. Good conversations take place when someone takes an interest in another person by asking him questions. 
Back to John 16, 5. Jesus stated that no one asked him a question about his departure. That is to show no one was interested. True, if you read back in chapters 13 and 14, Peter had asked Jesus where he was going and Thomas had asked the way to take. But when they asked the questions, they weren't really questions. They were actually complaints. You and I understand this all the time. There's a difference between a question that really is a question and a complaint. Think about when a parent gets up from playing with a child, and the child asks, where are you going? The child is not really asking for information. He is complaining that you got up, and he wants you to sit back down. His question is a complaint. Even so, when these disciples asked where Jesus was going, they weren't interested. They weren't asking about his return to heaven, what he would do when he got there, and what that meant for them. They were sad that he was leaving them. And what they needed instead is a, why is that attitude? They needed a change in their dispositions because their focus was upon themselves. It was on the matter at hand. It was on what might fall apart in the future. The sad reality from what Jesus says in that they didn't ask him where he was going is this. Christ wasn't their care, which is why they didn't ask him the question in the first place. The even more sobering truth is that if they had loved him, they would have been excited for him instead of sad for themselves. Now, that's a bold statement. But it comes from chapter 14, verse 28. I encourage you to turn a page back to John 14, 28. This is where it says, If you love me, Jesus speaking to his disciples, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. So Jesus has already told them the appropriate response to his going away. The way you ought to respond to my going away is rejoicing. And just by way of a cross-reference, Luke 24, 52, eventually they do get to that point when he leaves, they do rejoice. But for now, they're not rejoicing, they're sad. But why aren't they rejoicing? It's because they're not believing yet. Look at the next verse, John 14, 29. Now I have told you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So Jesus says what he says so that they'll believe. And the reason they weren't rejoicing is because they weren't yet believing. You see, joy stands upon faith. It can't stand upon doubt. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, lives all around us are falling apart, and perhaps we find ourselves at times at the very brink. This is indeed the case because the true and living God is so often absent from the consideration of our minds, the minds of those around us. People can fathom only what is before them that will bring them loss, just like the disciples were full of sorrow because of Jesus going away. What do you do with folks like that who can't see any hope going forward? What's to be done? Well, you need to tell them the truth. I say that's that's what they need because that's what Jesus did in verse 7. 
Jesus says to them in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. That's not to say Jesus doesn't always tell the truth. That is to say that he wanted his disciples to tune in right now to avoid disaster. The truth is that God is working out his goodwill for our lives for his own glory. That's the truth. He is working out his goodwill for our lives for his glory. Yet, we struggle to believe God's good intentions for us. And the disciples needed to trust Jesus' word about his going and the Spirit's coming. So Jesus begins by challenging their apprehensions. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. But we've already done the math. They had already crunched the numbers. His leaving meant their loss, but not according to him. It meant advantage. So one person thinks it's loss. One person thinks it's advantage. Contradictory answers. Have you ever experienced a time like that before? Of course. Just think about the dinner table. The child wants to have mac and cheese for every meal. The father disagrees. He believes in a more well-rounded diet. And what the father will do is overrule for the benefit of his child, even though it may bring sadness and even resistance. And so it is that God is intent on what is best for us. And he asserts that his plan is superior to ours, no matter how much we fret and cry. Jesus says to the disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. And then he explained their advantage, the end of verse 7, for explaining the reason why he said that, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. For one to come, one must go. For him to come, I must go, Jesus said. The Spirit's ministry was going to be better for the disciples. You say, why? You turn back to chapter 14, verse 16. The Spirit's ministry would be permanent. It says this, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. You realize that Jesus was only on the earth for just over three decades. That's it. But now the Holy Spirit of God has been on the earth, all over the earth, for almost 2,000 years. Not only would His presence be permanent, but it would be a resident presence. He would take up residence in us. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He will be in you. You see, up until this point, Jesus' disciples have been walking by sight. They have seen Jesus with their eyes. One day they will have to walk by faith, by the work of the Spirit in their hearts. Because it was the Son's responsibility to come to the world and redeem the lost. It was the Spirit's responsibility to come into the world and enliven dead sinners, to indwell them. Jesus accomplished salvation. It was the Holy Spirit who had to come and apply it. But that whole experience is a difficult experience. And young people, let me close with this then. You've come to the end of the school year, about. 
And perhaps you have come to really love your teacher. And you can't imagine going through the education system without your teacher. But I have news for you. You're going to get a new teacher next year. And you might say, that is sad. I understand. It is sad. But if you are going to progress, you need to go on to the next grade and have the next teacher. And Jesus says to his disciples, yes, I have been with you. Yes, that is a comfort to you. But it is better for you that I go away so that the Spirit will come. You see, at this point, Jesus still has not died. He has not risen again. He has not ascended to heaven. The Spirit has not come. They have to trust the Lord. What do we learn from this? What we learn is that there are times that what is before us, what we are called to do, seems at odds with what is good for us. We think, well, that's not a good thing. That is going to be loss in my life. That's not going to help me. That's going to hurt me. But when God has said it, then he must intend some good through it. I remember so well through our study in Christian contentment, we have to learn to trust that our Heavenly Father sets a table before us, before us, even at times in the presence of our enemies. And that is to teach us how frail we are because we fall apart so quick and how much we desperately need to learn to trust His good intentions for us. Because as the time goes, as the years pass, we come to realize all the good that God had intended through, his, through Christ returning to heaven and the Spirit coming. And we look back at Pentecost and we see the, how the gospel is grown around the world and we see the benefit. But for the disciples on that day, they had to trust what Jesus said. And there are times that you and I face things in life and would we, when we would give in, when we would become saddened by setbacks, we have to sit back and ask, what is the Lord doing this, through this? How might the Lord be glorified through this? And we need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, help us as we learn this very difficult lesson, the lesson that even the disciples of Jesus Christ had to learn. Father, indeed, which one of us wouldn't desire Jesus Christ in his bodily presence among us? We would think that would be just great. Father, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and not only we in Waterville, in this congregation, but all over this state, all over this country, all over the world. We have a habitation of God, a temple of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the advancement of God's kingdom as people are made alive, as the gospel goes forward. Father, help us not to question your intentions. Help us not to question that your plan is going forward. Help us not to question that your plan is for our good. Help us to learn this lesson. From this text in John 16, we pray for your help to do so in Jesus' name.
Amen.